This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy, and on today's show, we talk about the unique geology in the Moab area and how it has helped preserve certain dinosaur fauna found nowhere else in the world. It's a good show, recorded for you in Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. That plasticity of those salts gave us, you know, many of the features that basically gave us the national parks we have around here. But it also led to the preservation of dinosaur faunas, as I said, that occurred nowhere else in North America. You know, we'll never find a Utah raptor in Wyoming or Montana. They just, there was just not rocks of that age preserved. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. James Kirkland. He is the Utah State Paleontologist for the Utah Geological Survey. James is responsible for discovering and naming many new dinosaur species from the early Cretaceous Cedar Mountain Formation, right here in Grand County. The Cedar Mountain Formation only exists in thin outcrops near Arches National Park and the San Rafael Swell. So these fauna are key to understanding the Cretaceous paleogeography of the entire Northern Hemisphere. We begin our interview with James explaining what the environment was like over 100 million years ago when the Cedar Mountain was being deposited. As we start to get sediment and the first dinosaurs in these beds, uh, it seemed to have been a pretty wet environment. Uh, We look at the fossil soils, they're rich in iron, they have uh, mats of silica. In fact, uh, the cherts at that level, which outcrop all the way around the Moab region, we now understand are silicified peat deposits. You get petrified wood made out of silica. Well, peat, pure plant material, you know, precursor to coal, in this environment was being altered and replaced by silica. And we've actually had people report that these were petrified log fields. And when you go out and look at them, you realize these are beds, and this is actually was peat. And we see roots of ferns, other plants. So it was very marshy, wet environment. But during yellow cat deposition, we have a break, a big soil develops, and we start to see carbonate. We lose the iron and we start to get calcium carbonate salts. Basically like the alkali we see out here in the spring coming up to the surface. It gets drier. The fauna seem to change. But because of this subsidence here locally, we have lakes that occur here and nowhere else. But overall, it's a much drier setting. And that break, that's massive soil that develops between the lower part of the yellow cat and the upper part of the yellow cat separates the two dinosaur faunas. So we see uh, for the raptors, Yorgovuchia down in the lower part and Utah raptor in the upper part of these beds. But this big break uh, marks a change in climate. And it's when the mountain ranges to the west, the severe thrust belt, First is developing a rain shadow across the Moab area. So we go from wet environments to dry. So we have this serious change in climates. And during that time, there were fluvial-like rivers, right, coming off the severe? Before that, the rivers are mainly coming more from the south and extending across this area because of the severe mountains. But these uh, mountains didn't exist in the early part of the deposition. 
So once they started coming up, you start to see the river shifting from kind of southwest to northeast to more eastward as they are coming off of that central Utah mountain belt. So this remnant of Cedar Mountain Formation, obviously you spent a lot of time on it. Can you just describe what type of animals were living? You know, we've defined six different dinosaur faunal levels, and we've recognized a new mass extinction that's at least across the whole northern hemisphere that we weren't able to define until we started looking at these rocks. And then we realized it's also in Europe, you know, <laughs> particularly the rocks in Spain uh, that overlap with what we have here. So that's been a real exciting revelation. And mainly what we've been looking at in the Moab area, the rocks before this early Cretaceous extinction event. And at that time, the landscape was dominated by a couple kinds of long-necked dinosaurs. You know, people sometimes think they went extinct at the end of the Jurassic, but uh, the diversity went down. It's possible that all the North American animals went extinct because at this time, some of my European colleagues and one of the, some of the new animals we've named right here, Moabasaurus, Murasaurus, uh, appear to be Turiosaurus that are only known in Europe. And they may have come in to replace the animals that went extinct at the end of Morrison times. Basically a big immigration event of animals. We also see uh, commonly an armored dinosaur group. We have several new species as we have a sequence of faunas that are called polycanthines and they're some of the spiniest armored dinosaurs out there big shoulder spines big triangular plates down their tails turtle like <laughs> uh, shell over their hips probably because of things like utah raptor they're probably completely immune to those uh you know nasty animals and then we have iguanodonts and the basal part of the yellow cat we've now recognized the oldest most primitive of the thumb spiked iguanodonts known anywhere in the world so we've been pretty excited about that, Sterichosternid-type uh, guanodonts. And they go extinct at the Aptian, you know, this mid-early Cretaceous extinction. Polycanthines go extinct. We haven't found any stegosaurs yet in the early Cretaceous here, but they occur in Europe and China, Africa, everywhere else, so I, I wouldn't be surprised. But the extinction of the end of Jurassic might be more significant in North America than anywhere else. You know, we're just getting these little tidbits now. I mean, this is the good old days for discovery right now. Yeah. How have these discoveries here in Grand County, how are they fitting into the global picture? And are we seeing things that have not been seen in other parts of the world? Yeah, pretty much everything we're finding are new to science <laughs> in every species, every, every fossil. People in Utah tend to be jaded from the Morrison animals, and, oh, it's the same old, same old. Pretty much everything I've ever found has been a new species in my, in 30 years. You know, as I've said, we've, and, you know, I've named, been involved with naming 22 dinosaurs in the region. Other people, Brigham Young University, uh, Denver Museum of Natural History has been finding things out here, naming them, uh, the Museum in Price. There's been a number of groups out here just working in Grand County that have discovered and named new dinosaurs. So we have this spectrum of new animals. In fact, we just named a mammal from up uh, just on the other side of Arches. And this mammal, uh, its closest relatives are in North Africa. It's a group that's never been, was never found in North America before. And it was only known in Asia and Europe and certainly came over 
and it's a real big mammal from Mesozoic mammal. It's a giant. So where our sauropods at this time are smaller, Moabasaurus is, you know, half as big as your typical Morrison big sauropods. This guy's real big. So leapfrogging across the proto-North Atlantic from island to island probably has some island dwarfism for the big giant sauropods like we see with elephants during the uh, age of mammals. But small animals can be big. Things like the dodo bird, you know, got really big on islands. And that's maybe what's happening with this mammal that we found that seems to come over from Spain. None of this was known before. And it may be that those islands were a center like the Galapagos of, of speciation for both Europe and North America. And, you know, working with my European colleagues, uh, we discovered in Spain that following that mid-Cretaceous extinction, the European armored dinosaurs which were always lumped with the North American armored dinosaurs after that time interval, we discovered were a completely unique group through their whole history to their extinction, as were the ones in North America. But they're closer to each other than anything else on the planet. So we created these new species, maybe on an island, one hopped over to Europe and diversified, one hopped back over to North America, diversified, and they never combined again <laughs> with the opening of the Atlantic. What kind of methods do you use to work with paleontologists around the world with their data? How are you bringing all this together? One of the things we brought uh, onto this project first is I got um, one of my hugely lucky connections uh, for this whole project was teaming up with Selena and Marina Suarez. The Suarez sisters, Marina is now in charge of geochemistry at the University of Kansas and Selena runs the program at the University of Arkansas, but I was able to hook into them <laughs> when they were just looking for grad school and got them to start doing a master's thesis on the Cedar Mountain Rocks. Both these young women have just pulled in their second half million dollar grant each to keep this pro their, their project going. But what they do is they look at stabilized isotope geochemistry and rare earth geochemistry. And they're using this to both interpret environments and to look at paleoclimatic changes. And one of the reasons I brought in the group to look at stable isotope geochemistry, particularly carbon, was to try to date the rocks because we didn't have many ashes. We're starting to find some now, but early on we had no ashes. So dating these rocks were really problematic. But around the world during this time, uh, the world's oceans went stagnant several times, what we call oceanographic anoxic events, because it was a very warm earth, no polar ice caps. You know, now we have cold water pushing the circulation, cold, dense water pushing deep water circulation. When it's warm, only dense water is saline warm water. Saline, you know, warm water doesn't carry as much oxygen as cold water. So your bottom water is already pretty stagnant and it was less energetic, less density differences to drive it. So water would go 100,000 years before seeing oxygen again, where today it's about 10,000 years. So periodically, when the volcanoes are erupting, a lot of carbon, you get a very productive planet, the oceans would go belly up to a few hundred feet water depth. But that also resulted in the burial of something on probably on the order of 60 or 70% of the organic carbon that the entire organic fuels industry of the planet is based around. So it's uh, gotten a lot of study. But when it's happened, 
it changes the the carbon isotope uh, ratios and carbon dioxide in the global atmosphere and this becomes uh, reflected in the soils so we've been studying the chemistry of these soils in, in detail through these sequences plotting the curves of how these isotopes change and try to recognize these big events because it caused huge swings in uh, carbon uh, 13. Carbon 14 is what they use for carbon dating. Carbon 13 is a stable isotope and carbon 12 is the most common, is the abundant uh, carbon atom. And you're finding ways that these are correlating uh, globally. globally. This is, these nice. are, this is a global yeah. signal. So we're they just published a paper. That, I mean, literally, I got a copy of it yesterday that Selena and Marina were uh, doing with my Chinese colleagues, and they're correlating uh, the rocks out in western China through the same time interval and looking for these same shifts in western China. And we're starting to really log in to China and North America. And they had the same problem we've had in very few volcanic ashes. So these things uh, have been really useful. So I'll just jump back again to the uh, Cedar Mountain, and it's amazing that there's so little outcrop of it. From what I understand, the Cedar Mountain, the first discovery of it was in San Rafael Swell, but the only two type locales are that and in Paradox Basin in, in uh, Grand County. And so I wanted to touch on a bit of what you've been working on in terms of understanding why we do have this formation here and how it uh, links in with the salt tectonics of the area. You know, for people listening, salt is plastic. It never, you know, we buried back in the late Paleozoic at about 350 million years ago or so. There was the ancestral Rocky Mountains coming up, the ancestral Uncompadre Mountains, biggest escarpment right through about where Gateway, Colorado is, was an escarpment uh, like we see at Death Valley with large alluvial fans shedding to the west, which was on the western side of the continent. So marine waters were flooding in. When you make a big mountain range like that, miles of relief, the crust subsides from the weight of those mountains happens over geologic time a long period of time but it makes a basin in front of it that we call a foreland basin and the water marine water is flooding into that at that time would evaporate and leave a layer of salt then it would happen again another layer of salt and the reason it was periodically happening there was a major ice age during that time interval so sea levels are going up and down kept dumping water in dry it up, dump more water and dry it up. So we ended up with thousands of feet of salt in the Paradox Basin. That's one of the real resources that we have here that's fairly unique. That salt never turns to rock like sand does with cements and things, or even mudstones are much more resistant than, than these salts. So you squeeze, you start piling up thousands of feet of rock on top of it, squeeze it down, the salt moves and it starts warping through and it creates things like the uh, Salt Valley Anticline, which coming across by Professor Valley, you know, got breached by the Colorado River, dissolved the salt off, collapsed it, and gives us Arches National Park. That same salt, and most of that happened earlier, you know, than the Cedar Mountain Formation. And this work we're doing is the first time we've been able to prove that there was active salt tectonics all the way up into the early Cretaceous because there was really no evidence because people weren't looking at these rocks. Uh, there were scientists didn't believe they were even worth putting a name on them. 
that's ah, just the upper Morrison. <laughs> but that plasticity of those salts gave us, you know, many of the features that basically gave us the national parks we have around here. But it also led to the preservation of dinosaur faunas, as I said, that occurred nowhere else in North America. You know, we'll never find a Utah raptor in Wyoming or Montana. They just, there was just not rocks of that age preserved. And can you go in just a little more detail of how the salt tectonics, so you've got uh, ridges and uh, depressions. How did that help preserve these rocks that are so prolific in yeah, well, these bones? Well, basically, with you know, you get places that are being uplifted. The Salt Valley Anticline was a, a major uplift. But as salt is going into that to cause the uplift, it's coming from the sides. Because of that, those areas are subsiding. So we end up with, in fact, if you look at all the sites where Utah raptor has ever been found, they make a, a U-shape right around arches. Just follow the outcrop belt right around. Been found nowhere else. But they're really abundant right in here. You know, it's a real Grand County animal because, you know, what gives us arches is what caused that ring of substance around it. And that's been uh, real exciting. But we found as we go above the yellow cat, you know, there's a interval, the poison strip sand, a period of low deposition. And we have unique animals there. And we have that extinction level. And then we get a rock unit we call the Ruby Ranch, which is still within the Cedar Mountain Formation. And it's in this area, it's 100 feet thick or less. But on the west side of Arches, if you're driving by, you know, by the airport and you look over kind of toward Arches, you see these really light-colored hills. Those are lake deposits of early Cretaceous age. And there's a belt of lake deposits and a big river under them from subsidence toward the end of Cedar Mountain deposition here locally that led to this giant lake system to form there. The Cedar Mountain Formation over in the Western Swell is almost completely non-correlative to the Cedar Mountain here. And there is where we get the data showing the, uh, the beginning of the uh, Foreland Basin that developed for that. We don't see any evidence of that over mm -hmm. here. And that's all Upper Ruby Ranch and another unit, the Mustn't Touch It. And those units only exist over there, the upper faunas of the Cedar Mountain. And we see the first evidence of snow on the severe. Because when we look at oxygen isotopes and the enamel of these dinosaur teeth that we have now, it's you know, many levels through this 45 million year sequence of rocks. And you have oxygen, the light oxygen gets trapped up in the mountains. So as it comes over, the, you know, the snow is holding this stuff. The spring melt changes the isotopic ratio of the oxygen in the water. And the animals drink this water, and it causes the oxygen isotopes in their enamels, the best place to get it, to change. And it generally takes a big dinosaur tooth about a year to grow. So you see these things, and if you see this big, strong cyclicity, you know there's snow melt. And the yellow cat, we see no evidence of any strong cyclicity at all. But as we get over to these beds, all of a sudden we see this strong cyclicity coming in. So first snows of the severe mountains during the Cretaceous in central Utah. I was wondering if you could go into a bit of the methodology. How you follow these, and then once you do find a hint of something, mm -hmm. how do you excavate it? Well, once we find a little bit of bone, the only way you find that stuff is hike around and look for little chips of bone. 
And the Cedar Mountain, some of our sites, uh, the bone, when it's on the surface, is a stain on the, in the rock. I mean, it's not even pieces of bone. We've, we've found some really subtle sites that have turned into gold mines, uh, which is why the stuff's there, I think. <laughs> Once you find a site that's producing bone, you need to start doing a test excavation. Because sometimes it's just one or two bones. They've weathered out, and that's it, and there's nothing more. And, and more times than not, that's what happens. But we have found a lot of bone beds in the Cedar Mountain. The bone tends to be a lot more fragile than the Morrison bone, which has kept it from being excavated as much around this area. Going in the first meter or so as we excavate, I, I, we're always joking. As good scientists, we get all the data, but that sometimes we just wish we could just shut our eyes and, and just take a pick to the first meter because it's mush, you know, and the bone is mush. And, and it's, you know, it'll take a year sometimes to go through that first three feet to start getting the fresher material. If you weren't after date, you know, information, you might rip through that a lot quicker. Uh, but our goal is to learn about the history of this, you know, this region. But once we've gone through, evaluated, okay, this is a site that looks like there's a fair bit of material, we begin excavating. Sites like Dalton Wells, which is pretty well known here, has produced over 5,000 bones. Uh, Doling's Bowl site, you know, several thousand bones. Uh, the Gaston Quarry, a thousand bones or so. Crystal Geyser, uh, several thousand bones from some of these bone beds. Uh, you know, some of these sites are remarkable. You know, that uh, a university or college could, you know, work on them for hundreds of years. I mean, how many established sites do we have, say, here just in Grand County, in the Cedar Mountain? In the Cedar Mountain? A couple hundred plus. Yeah, we go out, you know, Don and I joke that on any given day, we can we can find a site you can spend your career on. I mean, we I have a lot of sites I'd love to open up. You don't, you know, want to do more than you can deal with. These things we have here are only here. For Utah, we have more sites than any other place in the country. We have more dinosaurs and species than any other state in every country in the world other than maybe China and Argentina. That's amazing. You know, in Utah. <laughs> what first got you into paleontology? Well, when I was about five years old, my dad went on a business trip. And uh, this was back in 1959. I'm an old guy. <laughs> and brought back a vacuum pack thing of, of eight dinosaurs, the big six. You know, he had a T-Rex and a Triceratops, a Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, and one of the big six. Of course, Brontosaurus at the time, uh, uh, let's see, and Trachodon at the time. It's not called that either uh, anymore. But uh, those, those are the big six dinosaurs, you know, that I, you know, learned as a kid in the late 50s, a little kid that started liking dinosaurs. Of course, now we have almost 100, more than 100 dinosaurs known in Utah and almost 1,000 dinosaurs known worldwide. So, you know, one in 10 dinosaurs are Utah on <laughs> the planet. <laughs> you know, we look, I look at this place like Egypt. If you're interested in mummies, and you got to go there. You know, if you're interested in dinosaurs, you got to come here because we have the most complete record anywhere, you know, for, for this kind of material. We have 20, right now, 27 overlapping, non-overlapping uh, non sequential dinosaur faunas, which you can liken to separate continents. You know, we have the Australian fauna, we have Africa. Just layer on layer, and everything is different from the next layer. Oh. And uh, there's nowhere else like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's layers we haven't even touched 
that we've identified hey, down around Tropic, Utah, and, you know, and some stuff over in the Bears Ears area. There's you know, some really uh, exciting things uh, still waiting in the wings. There's lots of, I bet we'll double the number of dinosaurs here in the next 30 years. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I love Eureka. Every time you make one of those moments where you, when I, like when I first figured out it was the salt that was responsible for what we were seeing, I measured a lot of the rock columns going all the way from Grand Junction all the way into the swell and realizing the yellow cat just pinches out there, thickens up here, pinches out there. You know, there's Salt Valley Anticline in the middle of it. These upper beds stay constant across you know, arches, boom, you have this big lake sequence sitting there. Got, you know, substance there and nowhere else. And that's, you know, one of the values. But the big value of what we do is gets kids interested in science. Yeah, exactly. You know, just, you know, get kids realize we're figuring these things out. You know, we, we got the dinosaurs, but then there's all this. We have to look at the context, the rocks, and the chemistry the rocks are within, the chemistry of the animals themselves. You know, what are they eating? What are the plants like? Uh, what are the soils like? They tell us climate, you know. And, you know, as a young kid that loved dinosaurs, and there's a lot of mini-me's out there, it's, it gets kids thinking about a bigger universe and, and their backyard. And that is priceless. Well, Jim, thank you. Thank you for coming in and talking with us, and it's been a pleasure to have you here at KZMU. Oh, I've been well, I've been wanting to chat with you guys for a while since we listened to you out in that quarry every uh, summer for two months stretches. <laughs> to listen to this interview with James Kirkland again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. The show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.